welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you today here today for this show. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written some books. I'm working on a few books right now, and one of those books is uh, on the subject of totalitarianism. But enough about me. How about you, Tom? Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, philosophy, and sometimes other things, and writing things. And making you all wait. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Who, who sang that song, Anticipation? Was it Carly Simon? Carly Simon. <laughs> well, for, for those who actually do get the Fight, Laugh, Feast magazine, I, I've been giving little snippets here and there of what I'm up to. So I think there's three different articles that will become fuller chapters. Well, are, are fuller chapters. So. Um, that's part one. But for those who don't, well, too bad. You have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> but right, it is coming. Right. Yeah, that's right. We've got to have that anticipation song in the background <laughs> here. Well, most folks know it from the Heinz commercial. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Glenn, why don't you introduce yourself and then take us into the subject? Okay. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a retired history professor um, specializing in early modern Europe, uh, but also did a lot with medieval. That's going to come up. And uh, I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries. Um, at the urging of several people, at least one of whom is on this podcast with me, I have decided that I need to uh, start doing more with Twitter. <laughs> and I, I, I am not. Uh, I, I, I am not a really serious twit about this, but I, I, I am uh, I am on it. I, I ran across a thread that I thought was really interesting, um, which I then ended up sharing, and someone very helpfully ripped it up one side and down the other and referred me to another article which was on a similar kind of topic. Um, and the guy, it seems to me, completely missed the point. But I'm, I'm rather grateful for having him having pointed out uh, these, this other article as well. But what it was talking about is the in the film version of The Lord of the Rings, the way Peter Jackson presented Aragorn is very, very different from the way Tolkien does. Now, I've got to say right off the bat, I like the film versions of The Lord of the Rings. I think there, there are some things I, I wish they could forgive you. We can forgive you, Glenn. We can forgive you. <laughs> yeah, we've um, got, we're, we're, we're magnanimous. We can forgive yes. you. <laughs> well, thank you. We're heading in that direction. The, the, there, there are things that I consider kind of in, unforgivable in the movies. Oddly enough, I'm most pissed off about Treebeard. But, um, <laughs> but, but be that, and, and there, are other, there are other scenes that I think are just way overdone. But, but aside from that, I mean, I think they're really good movies. Um, but they're not. In, in many ways, they aren't what Tolkien was doing with The Lord of the Rings. And um, Aragorn's character is one of the things that, that well, it was the thing that this particular article and this thread on, on Twitter highlighted. Now, in The Lord of the Rings, Aragorn clearly knows he is the king. He has the right to rule. It is, you know, it, it's core to who he is, his self-concept and everything else. And he is moving forward basically to claim his, his right uh, to be king. Now, when the filmmakers, when Jackson and his uh, Philippa Boya, Boya, whatever the last name was there, uh, when, when they were writing The Lord of the Rings, they looked at that and said, hey, we can't do that because... We have seen too many people who have said, you know, I am the, the man of destiny. I have the right to rule. I have the right to, you know, do all of these things. It always ends badly. You know, so we can't present them like that. People don't trust, given our history, people don't trust people who are like that. Um, for, for making the film, I, you know, it's a, it's a reasonable decision, I think. But it does really seriously distort what Tolkien was about with Aragorn. Um, and the thing that these, uh, these particular uh, articles highlighted is an old virtue called magnanimity. And while we think of a magnanimous person, you know, if we even use the word at all today, we think of it as someone who's kind of generous, who, who 
freely forgives people who wrong them, who's who's magnanimous in extending you know forgiveness and all of that kind of thing. But it means something much bigger than that. Um, that is, in fact, part of it, at least later on. But it means something much bigger than that. When when you go back to um, to Aristotle, Aristotle's equivalent of this uh, uh, magnum psyche or something like that, uh, great soldness, which then goes into Latin as magnanimous, anima being soul. Um, that idea in Aristotle was you know, essentially someone who recognized in himself the excellence and strove for it and achieved it. So it's someone who is reaching for, well, if you will, you know, the, the absolute maximum that he can, he can achieve in his own life, um, reaching for greatness uh, and achieving it. And from that position, according to Aristotle, the magnanimous person has the right to look down his nose on the inferiors around him. Now, that idea gets changed. Yeah. When you get to Christianity, the Latinized version of it, of magnanimity, is then influenced by Christian ideals of humility and charity and love. And you get a different kind of perspective on it. But still, according to Aquinas, it, well, according to Aristotle, it was the chief of the virtues. And according to Aquinas, it is also very much essentially the chief of the virtues, as long as you add the humility and charity into it. You know, what came to mind when you mentioned that is Lancelot and Camelot, his song. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> Who's humbler than me? I'm far too noble to lie. That man in whom these qualities bloom, I don't know the song at all. <laughs> um, you, you, you can be grateful that I don't sing it. <laughs> one of the uh, one of the significant shifts I think it, uh, that is worth noting, especially for our theologically attuned audience, is the theological shift that does actually take place between Aristotle and and Aquinas, and that is is very significant because you you rightly noted for Aristotle as well as for Plato, not all humans were all that. You know, even though they would talk about, you know, human nature, human beings within a universal category, um, not everything participated that fully. And thus there are is a hierarchy of significance um, based on who has actualized the better potential. Right. Um, or who who has the better gifts or endowments or virtues is more oriented to the good, the heroes or the or the saints, if you will. And so there is this this kind of hierarchy, but the hierarchy is such that really you could only fully call human in the full sense those that were on the exceptional side. Christianity brought something in very different that all humans made in the image of God, wherever you're placed, that doesn't mean you stay there, but it allows for humility to actually take on significance um, in relationship, even as one pursued excellences and, and, and higher virtues. So that, that connection is, is fundamental in terms of shifting from the pagan to the Christian. So I think, though, that many people, when they hear the term humility, they think uh, that it's a synonymous with self-deprecation. Yeah. <laughs> in other words, you know, a person who's always sort of like talking themselves down, yeah. uh, a person who lacks maybe the kind of confidence yeah, yeah. Uh, to actually go and uh, do something noble or to uh, pursue greatness. That's almost, in some minds, an indication of uh, a lack of humility, yeah. that if yeah. you aspire to something, yeah. then that indicates that you're full of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that's marvelous, too, about Lord of the Rings is when you see the interaction of the various characters, mm -hmm. uh, you can see what we're getting at here. So like when you see, say, Gandalf and Pippin, or you see Aragorn and Sam, I mean, we're talking about people who are at far ends yeah. of a kind of spectrum, yeah. but there are, but there, but there's a, there's a kind of goodness in both, both. Uh, extremes. And, and like, when you think about say Aragorn and Sam, when Sam meets Aragorn initially, he doesn't trust Aragorn. You remember yeah. the scene in yeah. the Prancing Pony where he's like, you know, you're telling Frodo, you know, 
If you want my advice, Mr. Frodo, we start with him. <laughs> Remember when Aragorn tells him not to trust anybody, and <laughs> and, and so, but but you know, Aragorn's response to Sam was, "You're a start-hearted fellow, Sam Gamgee." Yeah. In other words, Aragorn doesn't take it uh, doesn't take the as an insult. Yeah. Instead, he's he's see, able to see something in Sam that's yeah. noble, which is his devotion to Frodo. Yeah, and uh, he he applauds it, and he's not defensive. Um, and in fact, you know, he goes on to explain in a very patient way, yeah. uh, you know, who he is to the hobbits. And over time, they grow in their appreciation for him. They 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 see he really is all that, yeah. you know. But he's not boastful. He's not pushy. He, so in a sense, I get what, you know, Peter Jackson and his writers were up to, because that's really where most of America, you know, most of us would start is with that notion that someone who's not self-deprecating, but we all know people who are self-deprecating, but are slime balls, um, <laughs> you know, because self-deprecation can actually be a way in which you uh, disarm people yeah. uh, so that you can get what you want, you know? Yeah. So, even that can be false. Well, and, and it's a very big, much a temptation a lot in the Protestant world because it, and it's, you know, I'm nothing. God is everything. You know, I mean, we get that. And I know what's trying to be said, but sometimes it's almost like it, it's, it's almost as if, you know, this, there is a kind of pride in self-flagellation that doesn't recognize that God doesn't want you to sit around and just self-flagellate. It's just the first step is humility recognizing that you owe all things to God, it's goodness and grace. Well, I, I would take the self-flagellant over some of the guys I'm thinking <laughs> yeah, about any time. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, con, the conman in the pulpit, you know what I'm yeah. getting at? Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the way I think to think about humility has less to do with what you think about yourself and more what you think about other people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. The, the, the antithesis of humility is, in Latin, superbia. Uh, which is translated into English as pride. Though, interestingly enough, the word Aristotle uses for magnanimity can be, has been translated into English as pride. Because again, they're looking down their nose at other people because they're superior to them. But what superbia, what pride means in the context of the seven deadly sins, is this desire to push yourself up ahead of everybody, to be superb, to be above them. And the opposite of that is humility. It's recognizing the goodness and the value of the people around you. It, uh, you know, someone said that humility, uh, this was attributed to C.S. Lewis, but incorrectly. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And I think that, I think that there's a certain amount of truth there. You're not thinking about yourself, your own dignity, your own place, all of those kinds of things. You're thinking about the people around you. That's the core of humility. And when you look at Aragorn's character, he's got it in spades. He recognizes it in Sam, um, in, in all of these other interactions. He spends years, even though he's the rightful king, he spends years living out in the wilderness, protecting the Shire from people who think of him as being a, a ruffian and a vagabond pretty much. Hmm. Okay. You know, that's humility. Yeah. It's thinking about the other people. And one of the things too, and I don't know how they could have accomplished this and certainly Tolkien doesn't do it, you know, up in an upfront way, but, but Aragorn is aware of sort of the colored history of Numenor. In other words, it's not as though the, the men of the West were all sterling and virtuous there were the black Numenarians, you know, Numerians who uh, were the evil, uh, you know, people from whom, you know, the witch king of Angmar and that whole uh, sort of dark side of the of the men of the West uh, and, and who rose up as the enemy of, uh, uh, you know, Gondor and uh, Anor and and. Um, eventually became ringwraiths. Uh, I can't remember. I, I, I believe that the majority of the ringwraiths uh, were Numerians, if I remember correctly. I think they that's weren't right. all. They weren't all, but they, the majority were. So, um, you know, what, what we're dealing with uh, here is a guy who had plenty of reason to be, I guess, uh, chastened. You know, his own ancestors didn't necessarily conduct themselves. You know, think about Isildur, Isildur you know, who... He took the ring for himself. He's Isildur's heir, right? 
Um, so Isidore's Bane, but he's a descendant. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's stuff in, in Aragorn's ancestry that would give him, you know, reason to, uh, to know that you can go bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, but Aragorn is equally aware that, um, there's also greatness in lineage, oh, yeah. Which, which, yeah. which is the one that he is going to pursue. Obviously, you know, he opts for, for the Elendil and, and sort of that side of things. Uh, right. And ardently opposes the black Numenorians. Right. Um, so Tolkien was well aware of this concept of magnanimity. He knew Aquinas really well. Um, and uh, actually, you know, it, it appears that Aquinas shaped a lot of, of Tolkien's uh, worldview that shows up in uh, The Lord of the Rings. But along with with Aquinas, we can also look at the development of the concept of chivalry generally in medieval Europe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, originally, you'll, you'll see some overlaps as we go along here. But originally, chivalry was, was simply a warrior code. Um, what it meant is primarily that you are going to be loyal to your, your, your lord. Um, you are going to be brave. You are going to seek for strength and prowess in battle, uh, all of those kinds of things. And you will treat members of your own, uh, your own, uh, uh, group that the the your fellow uh, servants of of your lord you're going to treat them uh with honor and respect and and um you know not cheat them or anything like that it doesn't say anything about your enemies mm-hmm. it doesn't say anything about women and children the weak or anything like that that's the original version of this it's a warrior code um then the church got into involved in this and the church began saying yeah you know what you guys are, are the nobles. You're the people who protect society against its physical enemies, just like the church protects it against its spiritual enemies. And so you need to be standing for righteousness. You need to be standing for justice. You need to adopt these values that Christ teaches us. So you need to learn humility. You need to learn to protect the weak, protect women, all of these kinds of things that we associate with it. So just like this concept of magnanimity gets changed by the introduction of Christian virtues of humility and charity, so the chivalric code, which was itself ultimately connected to the idea of magnanimity, you want to be the greatest warrior you can be, gets infused with these other Christian ideals as well. And again, this is something Tolkien is really well aware of. And you, you see references to it on and off all through. When you look at um, uh, the Prince of Dol Amroth, um, he, you know, they, they talk about his chivalry. And he do, that doesn't just mean the fact that he's, uh, he's leading the knights in a charge. It refers to all of these other characteristics that, that he had. Aragorn isn't Aragorn and Faramir aren't the only ones with this kind of virtue. There are others in the world. And I think that's an important point for really understanding what Tolkien is getting at, because Tolkien went through World War I. There is no sense of chivalry in war today. There, we've lost all sense of it in society. And he is writing something to kind of remind us of what that actually looks like. I think, too, that, you know, you noted earlier uh, the tendency to, to uh, be condescending to people who are not as uh, excellent, uh, and that being something that uh, Aquinas corrects. But I think there's also a, a sense that we shouldn't be um, embarrassed by greatness, um, and that there is a kind of a there's an ability to recognize greatness even across cultural barriers. So I think the noble in various, from various cultures can ignore, can recognize each other across cultural barriers. Um, I think that um, 
you know, we have history, we have, we have kind of, we've got records of, uh, you know, European explorers, uh, acknowledging the, uh, the leadership and the nobility of people from other parts of the world and other cultures. And I think particularly as, uh, Europeans went into the Orient, there was a acknowledgement that these are the noble, you know, people of this particular uh, nation. Yeah, right? and, and what's interesting, just as a sidelight there, when you look at the way Europeans reacted to Asians, all the way through the 17th century, they viewed Asian cultures as being, frankly, in a lot of ways, superior to their own. Now, they yeah. weren't Christian, but other than that, they, they yeah. saw them as, as, as really really high cultures. And it's only in the 18th century when Europe begins to get the ability to dominate these these countries that you start getting them looking down on a on the on asia it not only really begins in the 18th century yeah with the industrial revolution and with the you know machinery that right. the west was able to create yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting that you you know right there because a lot of times i hear all the time um people talking about you know why can't we why can't we build a certain cathedral or why can't we have a certain kind of aesthetic today? And, and a lot of people don't realize that it, it isn't that simple. It isn't about just getting our theory down, right? It's about being cultivated, formed, fashioned, oriented to God, the good, the summum bonum in such a way, because it is in that actual purification, if you will, at which the creative is unleashed in ways, I mean, this is the way the West understood, it's the way Plato understood it, that it is from the conversion by the good that the aesthetic is basically unleashed. And so these the, the virtue formations, the, the, the development of excellences, both in our natural, much less the, for Christians, the supernatural, these are all bound up with, with the taking of our initial endowments, fallen though they are, and being able through these gifts of both virtues and the higher virtues of attaining into the kind of creatures we're created to be in their fullness, but also being able to probe into the heavenly through imagination and everything else and bring it to light, to bear into things. And you see this even in fallen ways in cultures that have at least pursued those things, even though in their distorted ways, um, in, in limited ways to, to bring about cultural greatness with all its limits. And, and this, but one, one point on this is I think our replacements are, are kind of cheap substitutes. Let me give you an example, the self-esteem cult um, in, in our country, right. Uh, you know, in our culture where I can be magnanimous or great just by saying, I'm a King, I'm a queen. You know, I hear all this language. It's mediocre music but I'm a queen, I'm a diva or whatever, you know, right, or this, right. this kind of self-affirmation or self-projection of, of kind of what you want to be, where what we're talking about is something very different. It's you can recognize a kind of a, an endowment or a destiny um, without having to basically assert or promote it in a way that that fails to cultivate the character that has to go along with it. Right. And, and, and that, I think, is the key. The uh, being great sold does not mean that you are th that you think highly of yourself and all of that. Uh, it means that you have, in fact, pursued the things and achieved many of the things that lead to greatness. You know, you have cultivated yourself to the degree where you are demonstrating these characteristics, these character traits, and so on. It's not just a matter of thinking of yourself that way. It's acting on it and achieving it. Now, here's, here's a thought, just kind of, so maybe we can think about this in a set of steps. So the first step is to fake it and to fake it. In other words, when you uh, are saying something about yourself that's not actually the case. I'm a queen or I'm a king or whatever. <laughs> and you have nothing to really show for it. You've accomplished nothing. You, in fact, you're just a slave to your appetites. Okay, that's stage yeah. one. Stage two maybe is when you are actually pursuing the good and you're, you're actually growing uh, in grace and knowledge and understanding and you're actually uh, increasing in virtue and you are becoming something uh, uh, 
that's praiseworthy. Let's and, just put and, it that and, way. And you do get some, even, even we're not even talking like Christian freedom, you get some kind of freedom there. I'll give you an example rather than just a slave to appetite. Well, you're well, a skilled yeah, musician. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Let, me, let me just finish the thought though. But then the third stage would be when like, you actually know. Uh, I, uh, I actually am at a different stage mm-hmm. than many of the people around me. And if someone were to come up to me and ask me, uh, have you achieved something? It would be a lie to say I hadn't. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, you know, like sometimes people will, like when I was when I was uh, sort of developing as a minister, uh, sometimes people would come up to me and say, oh, that was a great sermon. And and, and, and early on, I would say I would, I'd, I'd self-deprecate. I'd say, well, you know, and, you know, I, maybe I'd point out some things that were wrong with it. Today I just say thank you. Right. <laughs> you say, well, I, thanks, thanks. I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I usually say thank you. I'm glad you found it helpful, or something like yeah, that. Right, right. But I do think that you know, if, let's say you know Mickey Mantle was in the room with us, yeah. and and you know he said, you know, well, I'm not such a great baseball player. <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> what, is, what does that say of everyone else? <laughs> well, not only that, but as you, you kind of thinking, you got some inability to recognize just the facts. You know, is there something about, you know, what, what's what's wrong with this? Or are you playing to us, uh, pretending that you like? I, you know, it's funny. I've been. I'm a Larry Bird fan. You know, I, I saw him back when he was, you know, breaking into the league. I remember. You know the seventies when he was, you know, he just was really that good. When you can take the the Indiana Sycamores, not the Hoosiers, but the yeah. Sycamores, and take them to an undefeated season and get into the finals, and you're the only reason, <laughs> just you, <laughs> you're pretty good. Yeah. And then you break into the league, and when he came into the league, he just did some things that just sent the message: I know I'm great. Here's one example. You know, when a rookie comes into the league, there's a kind of hazing that occurs. Every, he's supposed to carry everybody else's bags when they get off the bus mm-hmm. on the road trip. He's supposed to fetch water, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. The very first road trip, Larry Bird said to everybody else on the team, I am never going to carry your bag. I am <laughs> never going to fetch you water. <laughs> and he took the Celtics that first year from one of the worst seasons they had ever had the year before to, you know, uh, they were contending the very first year for the championship. So he was legitimately good. And he would tell you yeah. that he was good in the, in the ways he would do it. He would actually say to uh, other players as he was playing them, this is what I'm about to do to you. And then he would do it, <laughs> even though they would do everything in their power to stop him. And then he would score, you know, and they were just like, you know, it's arrogance when uh, you, talk and can't back it up but when you can talk and back it up it's just simply the facts <laughs> my, my favorite my favorite example like that i'm not much of a sports guy but uh michael jordan when the last thing you want to do if you're uh, you're a fan of the opposing team is is heckle michael jordan right That's because right. he won't say anything back he will just <laughs> Destroy, destroy your other, <laughs> your team. <I> mean, <laughs> right, right. It just makes him better. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess this kind of gets at that. It, does does being humble mean you lie about yourself if you really have achieved something? No, I I would say no because well, lying is not virtuous, and humility is. Well, and and I mean, and I think this is something that you know has always puzzled me is that. A lot. I mean, I'm, I'm again speaking of it from a from a Christian angle here. That that you know when you when you try to talk, you know, to, to kind of exalt God by denigrating God's creature. <laughs> um, and, and so I think the inability to recognize, even with depravity and sin, that there are still. I mean, actually, I mean, John Calvin at the beginning of the Institutes puts it brilliant. How can we talk about the in- the phenomenal endowments that human beings have, even in their fallen state, without turning immediately to the creator, the giver of those. So the humility starts in the reception of the gift. But I remember, uh, even Karl Barth put it brilliantly, joy in what has been given is the best form of gratitude. And I think a great sportsman or a great musician 
enjoying and indwelling the gift, recognizing it as a gift, but something they get to enact. They really are partaking of it and enacting it out. It's not just something that, that they're a mask on the front of. Um, shouldn't be something we have a false humility about. I think the real humility is recognizing this is something amazing and, and I'm here to share it and, and delight in it. Yeah, and I guess this, this brings up a thing that might seem paradoxical, but I think it is possible to be a truly accomplished person who has greatness of soul and hum- be humble. Uh, and I think that's what we're getting at. Yeah. While not always sort of putting yourself down, but yeah. also not necessarily uh, looking to promote yourself. You're just kind yes. of doing your job. That's right. Yeah. Well, and, and again, I, uh, my, my thing about humility is, is less about what you think about yourself yeah. and more about what you think about other people. Yeah. yeah. If, if you, you know, okay, you know you're really good. You're, you're Michael Jordan. You're Larry Bird. You're, you're Magic Johnson, who was at Michigan State when I was there. Um, you know, you're, you're, one of, you're one of these great athletes or, or you're a, a phenomenal m- musician. You're Yo-Yo Ma. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yo-Yo Ma is a really humble guy, but he knows he's really good at cello. Yeah. And, and you know, that that's just part of who he is. But and, he, he but he doesn't use this to lord it over other people. He doesn't look down on other people because I'm a great cellist and yeah. you're not. I mean, he, he's not like that. Yeah. You know, so so that that's that's where I think humility actually lies. It's yeah, you know, if you want to add magnanimity into it, it's recognizing the the gifts that God has given you, yeah. the ways that you have cultivated those gifts and developed them and used them, um, the things that you've accomplished, which you can take legitimate well pride in, as long as you don't consider pride superbia. But at the same time, you can't use that to say, therefore, I am better than yeah. this other person. That's when it crosses the line from legitimate pride to the sin of pride. Yeah. You could say I'm better at. Right. Yeah. But you're not saying fine. I'm a different kind of creature. <laughs> right. Uh, right. I don't have more worth or dignity. I mean, that, I mean, I think that's really what, what it gets down to. And, and then when, when we move it to that, somebody doesn't have the full worth or dignity just because I can play guitar better than them, that there's something there's something already creeping in that that is is you know, out of, out of order. That's where there's a deformed love going on. Mm -hmm. But usually, like you say, similarly, it's, it's, um, the humility is often also tied to the love of the, the, the good object to which it's directed like music, right? Mm -hmm. I so love good music that I'm ordered to it, not as an idol, but towards something to delight in. And so my character is formed by that as well. And so what I radiate is that hope to radiate is that joy and love for the thing, not so much myself, you know, <laughs> as kind of. And that's that's what I kind of was getting at is we tend to we talk of like, like the Hollywood alternative is like I'm this, you know, and a lot of times to make up for that lack or or mediocre, you know, talent, they have to exalt the image of themselves, you know, and it's almost, you know, this this distorted you know, a distorted sense of hero or character that would not would not be something attractive to, to much of the ancient world, much less Christian world. Yeah, I, what comes to mind as we're talking about these boastful people uh, is that uh, perhaps they're actually not all that certain of their of their achievements or concerning their achievements. Uh, what's that term that's used for people who are afraid they're going to be found out? Uh, <laughs> imposter syndrome imposter syndrome that's it yeah maybe, maybe they're afraid that they're that someone's finally going to catch up to with with them and yeah. see that they really aren't uh and and so maybe they feel like they need to be uh you know a self-promoter now there is there is a there is a i think uh something to um the the truth that uh you need to be able sometimes to say something about, you know, something for yourself. So let's say, you know, you find yourself being disregarded or or, or you're dismissed uh, in a, in a way that's not just, in other words, your achievements aren't acknowledged. Is it, is it wrong to stand up for yourself at a moment like that? 
I don't think it is, and I, I, I'm assuming you guys wouldn't think it is either. But I, but I think some people do think it is. Let's let's say you know you're a, you're an employee and you're working for a company. Now, obviously, you can get it wrong. You can yeah. say, you you can you can think too highly of yourself, mainly mainly because you're just not aware of your own shortcomings, and other people yeah. can see them. But let's say you are pretty aware of yourself and your abilities, and somebody else gets a promotion ahead of you, or somebody else is given credit for something you've done. It's not wrong to stand up for yourself at that moment and yeah. say, no, that I did that. That wasn't him. That, that was me. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because, it, it, you know, you, especially in the development of a human, quote unquote, person in the West, the whole notion of person. I mean, you can drive back, you know, a lot, a lot of what we'll talk about, you know, so, the Socratic you know, notion, know thyself. And, and this, you know, as sort of a, a self-obsession, no, it, it really wasn't. It was a radical thing in the sense that humans have the capacity to self-reflection and growth because of that. And there's, there's a proportioning that develops with, with a good knowledge of oneself. And it's actually in the process of both suffering and in the process of virtue cultivation, where you do start to get a, a healthy proportion of yourself. And I think when Christianity comes around, especially with Augustine, the doctrine of, of sin all the way down, if you will, there, there is this humbling side to the self, but then there is a way to begin to receive one's creative gifts and endowments the right way so that one has purported proportionate judgments. So when you do evaluate yourself and say, you know what, you didn't recognize the fact that, you know, last month I did actually knock the sales charts off at work. And right now you're just talking about the fact that I've had one bad month when for six years I've, I've basically knocked the charts off. I don't. Th I think that's proportions, truth telling, um, and standing up for yourself, not failing to be humble. Um, failing, you know. I, I think, and I think we do sometimes wrestle with, you know, at what time do we do we have to stand up for ourselves? Is it worth it or not? And but I do think there is. You know, get, getting back to Aristotle, this is something he talks about in Nicomachean yeah. Ethics. Yeah. So you know, in Nicomachean Ethics, he's he says, you know, you need to tell the truth, yeah. and that includes you. <laughs> you know, so uh, so if you truly are, uh, you know, uh, the best in the room, uh, don't lie and say you're not. Now, you don't necessarily have to say you are, but don't also just let it go, particularly if there's some reason for you not to let it go. So let's take this as an example. How many wives out there or how many women out there would like their husbands to stand up uh, and maybe assert himself more in certain situations. I think a lot. Yeah. Um, and sometimes guys don't do that because maybe they're just conflict avoid avoiders or something like that. But I think a lot of times what it, what happens is, is maybe a guy thinks, Oh, look at this. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the humble thing. I'm letting somebody else get, you know, take the credit for what I did. When your wife is thinking, why aren't you standing up for yourself <laughs> and getting that raise that would help us go on a vacation to Tahiti next year? <laughs> you get my drift. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the, well, I, I mean, I know this sounds like it's kind of we, we've traveled far from the from the point with Aragorn, but I, I do think they're very connected. It, it, the way in which one measures is is able to measure um, how to handle that kind of balancing act, um, the right way, having, having the virtues of humility coupled with, with the, you know, different virtues of excellence. Um, I think it's, it is a lost, you know, art, if I could put it that way. Um, because I, I think a lot of people, because we're removed from a lot of the formation now, I mean, we do still have it in some discipleship, but I think on the whole, the, the way of cultivating excellence, especially with, you know, warrior codes and the, and the like, it's very removed from people. But I do think they, they often fall in extremes. It's either radical self-promotion and, and egoism or, or, you know, it's appetites running both directions. Do you remember, uh, you know, Garrison Keillor and Prairie Home Companion? Yeah. What, what was the name of the Lutheran pastor? Was it Pastor, pastor Inkfist? Inkfist. <laughs> yes. He tells this wonderful story about uh, a vacation that his family is supposed to, to go on that the church had budgeted for. But you know how the deacons are in the church. You know, they're looking to make some cuts, you know, because the money hasn't come in the way that they, they hoped it would. And, and so one of the one of the deacons brings up the money that had been set aside for the family vacation and says, well, what's some fat in the budget that we can cut here? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then Pastor Ingvist says, well, there is my my vacation money. Oh, thank you, Pastor. And then he goes home and his wife says to him, 
you know, the great martyrs, they died alone. They didn't take their family along with them. <laughs> In other words, there's, there's a moment where Pastor Inkvist should have stood up and said, I have that coming. That's something that you promised me. Yeah. I understand that not, you know, there are times where we need to cut back every now and then, but my family is looking forward to this. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to this. And I have been your pastor for the last however many years. And this is the first vacation that we're going to enjoy in, the, in you know, in 10 <laughs> and stuff like that. That's not wrong. That's a, that's a greatness of spirit. That's a magnanimous, a magnanimous soul or a great soul who's standing up, not just for his own interests, it's not just merely about him, but he's representing other people and there are other people who are going to benefit. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got, you know, uh, you know, people in my family that I, that I've been able to watch do the, do the right thing in this, in this way. And their family has benefited because they stood up for themselves. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. My, my story along these lines, I don't want to detour with this, but my, my dad growing up, he was, he was a service tech. He was in the military as well. And, and, and somebody who really, you know, worked hard to get where he did as a command sergeant major. But he also worked for Sears and Roebuck heating and air conditioning. And I remember that one year they finally capped the age at which they would get raises. And my dad, with his military character formation, he calls the Sears Tower headquarters <laughs> on a conference call with the leader. And I heard him downstairs. I was wondering who. My dad doesn't normally get passionate. I heard him down there basically, <laughs> saying, basically saying, you fat cats can write yourself a check whenever you want, but we're the ones here doing the work. And we can't get anything. That year, every single person over that age got a raise not just my dad everyone got a raise uh, of that age in the in the whole country and that took one person with, <laughs> we got ticked off enough <laughs> yeah but he knew that it was unjust and he, he he had developed the character as a leader to say sometimes leaders have to be confronted with truth and uh and so it can have an impact <laughs> right right so the the issue of um, the, 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 the problem that we have, again, is, is that people mistake this kind of thing for pride, mm -hmm. sinful pride, um, yeah. pride or arrogance or something like that. And yet, if you actually understand the concept, it's far removed from it. And again, this is at, in a lot of ways at the heart of what was behind the at least ideals in chivalry. Now, Frankly, I know of maybe one guy historically who actually lived up to the ideals of chivalry. <laughs> um, uh, he he was he was a man named William Marshall. Um, William Marshall was uh, the well, just just a little background. He was he was a nobleman. Um, he was taken on by Henry II of England. He served him. He served under Richard. He served under John. Um, he was the argu arguably the greatest knight in European history. In his entire life, he never lost a tournament. <laughs> you know, and in these days, tournaments weren't just sort of polite jousts. They were right. free-for-alls in a lot of ways. Um, he, you know, he, he, you know, again, you know, we could go on and on about the guy. Also, a, a very shrewd political figure. Um, shrewd in a good sense, um, and in pretty much in every sense, he represented you know, magnanimity. Uh, he achieved excellence in pretty much everything that he did, but he did it in such a way that he recognized that you know he was serving the king. Hmm. That was his job. That was his responsibility. He swore an oath to do that, and he was going to fulfill his oath no matter what. Um, so as an example, uh, he was – Henry II had a son called Henry. The, he called him the young king. Uh, I'll call him Henry Jr. <laughs> and Hen Henry Jr. was named co-ruler with Henry. Henry Jr. was not happy with the fact that he didn't have more authority and power than he did because Henry II really kept it in his own hands – so Henry Jr. 
revolted against his father. Now, the trick is Henry II had told William, I want you to dissolve, let's dissolve your oath of fealty to me, and I want you to swear it to Henry, and I want you to, to sort of take him in hand. So Will, William, uh, Henry said, all right, uh, excuse me, William said, all right, I will do this. And he started serving under Henry. And when Henry revolted against, Henry Jr. revolted against his father, William advised against it, tried to talk him out of it. But when he did it, William fought on Henry's side. Hmm. Henry died later. The revolt didn't succeed. Henry died later. And Henry II took William back even though he'd fought against him, because he knew that for William, his oath was his absolute bond. If he had sworn to Henry, if Henry, Henry Jr., if, if Henry Jr. made a bad decision and, and William opposed it, he would still stay loyal and do his job. And so Henry, Henry II held no grudges, took him back. You know, but at the same time, when John, all right, you go from Henry II to Richard Lionheart to John. Um, Henry didn't. Henry had a lot of conflicts with John, but he. But when it came time to sign the Magna Carta, Henry, excuse me, I keep getting William, William, William still stood next to John at the at the signing of Magna Carta. However, he had also worked with um, with uh, Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury, to draw up the terms of the Magna Carta. Hmm. So he is operating politically, working to achieve justice in the kingdom without abandoning John. Hmm. You know, I mean, so the, the guy is absolutely fascinating, and he is a great example. Uh, William, um, uh, George Duby, a French historian, uh, called him the flower of chivalry. You know, he and and he said, frankly, William was out of date in his own period. He was sort of a throwback to ideals that were largely disappearing in his own day. But well, but it's a great example of what this looks like. This combination, this this connection between chivalry and magnanimity. But isn't that uh, something that we should remember that there, that ideals are always difficult to embody? At any time, you know, they may wax and wane. There may be points where they're waxing and more and more people are at least saying that there are things that we should we should strive for. Uh, and then there are other times when cynicism takes over or the realist or the pragmatist or what have you. This is one of the reasons why, you know, like uh, the Man of La Mancha is such a moving uh, story, you know, the, the musical in particular, uh, because of that of the idealism. Now I know that idealism can be nutty in the, in the sense that it can have unintended consequences when people pursue a, a kind of an ideal at, at the expense of just common sense. <laughs> but, and, but what I'm hearing you say about William is that's not the case. This was a guy whose feet were on the ground, but his ideals were high and he was able to sort of span the distance uh, dealing with the realities that he had to, 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 to kind of live, um, you know, within, and then keep his eye on the prize, so to speak. And what does that say about us? You know, some, sometimes, like when I, I'm known for my advocacy of the productive household. I know as well as anybody else that it's a difficult uh, thing to do. Uh, to, to uh, in particularly in our age with the industrialization and information economies and stuff like that. But that doesn't mean you don't try. It doesn't mean you don't do your best to try to make it work as best you can. Um, it's almost as though people have this notion that if it's difficult, then you have a, you have an out that, okay, we just don't have to do that because it's difficult. When in fact, if it's just, if it's genuinely an ideal, if it's truly praiseworthy, then who cares? Well, obviously you care, but I mean, it just, it's just something you do anyway, you pursue it. Well, that was, a, you know, that's another another dimension of this is we we don't cultivate for a lot of reasons uh, virtues bound up with patience and 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 endurance and and stamina and sticking with things and pushing through difficulties. Um, we we may do it with one or two kind of you know ideals, but 
you know, usually ones, again, we, we take the ideals that we know we never can achieve, like having a utopia through human <laughs> technique, right? And we bloodbath things, but then right. the ones that are actually perfections that we can right. increasingly conform to, these are the ones we jettison, right? And this right. is why right. I think you, you see in scripture, for example, when Jesus talks to the Pharisee, oh, you've, you've kind of, you painted the outside well, you virtue signal, but you haven't, you, you know, your heart is disgusting. Well, similarly, you know, you can easily get on to the right ideological bandwagon, but you are not someone who is actually, you know, first of all, you won't get along and suffer beside the people that you claim to be for. They actually rather repulse you. But secondly, you know, it takes, you know, it's, we can become amazingly we can flourish by pushing against the 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 grain and and suffering for good things um to to try to reach them so getting back to lord of the rings you know um one of the things that's really evident in the story is that sam knows that he's working class everything about his deportment and he admires Frodo, who's clearly, uh, as far as hobbits go, an aristocrat. I mean, he's about as aristocratic as a hobbit gets, I guess. <laughs> and, and, but, but there's no resentment. There's no um, kind of uh, fault-finding on the part of Sam. I mean, Sam knows his master's limitations. He knows his weaknesses. But that's not, that, those aren't occasions for him to despise Frodo or that's to right. try to take something from him. Uh, but reasons for him to serve him more wholeheartedly. And who who uh, spans the distance or who grows the most in the course of the Lord of the Rings? Isn't it Sam? When you get to the end, you're talking about one of the great uh, characters in the story. Yeah, yeah and, and Sam really, in a lot of ways, is the hero of the story. Yeah. It's one of the things people, people kind of miss, I think, sometimes. Um, that wasn't just Peter Jackson um, doing that. He is he is genuinely. I mean, Tolkien even viewed him as 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 a hero. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you can talk about Sam as being a person who is magnanimous. Yes. You know, who has whether he would have seen it this way or not, who has reached for excellence and achieved it. Mm-hmm. And so Sam would be a magnanimous character who is also a character who is, uh, you can't argue with his humility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although there is an edge to Sam that comes out at different points, like I noted earlier with Aragorn, mm-hmm. but also with uh, Gollum. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you, you, I think one of the things that, that may be kind of lost on us is when Sam and Gollum are interacting, they, they demonstrate they're actually from the same social class. <laughs> you get my, because there's a kind of understanding they have of each other and but they both recognize the ability of frodo as being kind of an of another class mm-hmm. uh you know uh now you might say well Gollum does that because frodo has the ring i don't know i think there's mm-hmm. more to it i think that that he really does know that that when it comes to the hobbits uh that uh frodo really is uh all that you know he's he's another class yeah and of course, the the model for Sam uh, was actually the subalterns that Tolkien knew in the trenches of World War One. Yeah, you know who who were well, frankly, like that. Yeah, that's right. You know, completely dedicated and you know, un, not self seeking at all, but always completely dedicated to the person that they were were working under. Yeah, yeah. And very uh, admirable people. You know, often they were Tolkien certainly admired them. Yeah, very honest, hardworking, no guile. I think that's one of the things that we lose sometimes. I think one of the temptations of sophistication, of course, is guile. When you're not a sophisticated person and you're just you just you're just unalloyed. I mean, you're just sincere. <laughs> yeah. Now you can be sincerely rotten. I've known some <laughs> blue collar guys that are sincerely rotten, but I've known <laughs> a lot of blue collar guys and gals who are sincerely great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, when I was in high school, I played Bill Sykes in Oliver. 
<laughs> and when they, when, yeah, I, 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 at that point in my life, I did barely controlled rage really well. Um, but but um, when they were talking about, you know, okay, c- character concepts, what, what are you working for? I, I said, I read Oliver Twist and I concluded that Bill Sykes is the only honest person in the whole thing. <laughs> he knows he's rotten, to, he's rotten to the core and he knows it and has no bo- makes no bones about it. That's all there is to it. That's right. <laughs> he's, he's accepted himself. He's got high self-esteem. Right. <laughs> so yeah, so anyway, you know, again, this, the, the, we, we used Tolkien as the, the difference between the book and the movie's jumping off point. You know, you, you kind of understand why Jackson did what he did. I mean, and yeah. and it you know it works okay. Um, but I think the vision that you get in the Lord of the Rings is something that we in our in our zeal for realism. This is a lesson George R. R. Martin could learn. Um, in in our zeal for some sort of realism that takes into account, well, frankly, human corruption and depravity and all of that, we have lost sight of the aspirational aspect of literature. Putting forward someone who is certainly human, but who is noble and who inspires us toward nobility. Mm-hmm. You know, for a while, uh, actually, there was a short time where people were were coming out with WWAD bracelets. What would Aragorn do? <laughs> and and you know, but 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 in a lot of ways, that's the point. Yeah, right. You know, he he's not perfect. He makes mistakes. He has doubts and things like that all along the way at various points. Just mm-hmm. not the angsty kind of stuff you get in Jackson. Right. Right. But there is still it, – it's, it's impossible not to recognize the nobility of the character. Yeah, And yeah, George R.R. R. Martin and Game of Thrones might be repulsed by that, but that says more about Martin than it does about Aragorn, I think. Yeah, yeah. well, I think a person like Martin, and I've not seen any of the Game of Thrones things. I've only heard accounts from people who have. But, he's, but it strikes me as a person you – know, the whole thing, this whole project strikes me uh, as similar to the project that, you know, Philip Pullman, uh, has. So, um, there's something about nobility that engenders both admiration, but also, uh, rage. Uh, so if you're going to pursue, uh, you know, noble, uh, you know, a noble way of life, uh, and aspire to great things that, yeah, there'll be people who admire you from a distance, but there are also be people who are just waiting for you to mess up mm-hmm. and are really happy when it happens because yeah. there's something in human nature that can't bear the thought of someone else uh, sort of rising to a level that, uh, that you haven't risen to yet. And in the classic seven deadly sins, that's the definition of envy. Right. Yeah. Um, envy is the flip side of pride, superbia. Uh, pride says that I am going to push myself ahead of everybody else. Envy says I'm going to rip down anybody that I see as being in front of us, yeah. in front of me. Right now, we are operating in a world where politics is driven by envy. Yeah. And yeah, it yeah. is a deadly sin. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I remember one time I was driving a guy, uh, kind of a working class black guy around Boston. I can't remember why, but we were just in the car together. And he was complaining about what he referred to as the crab effect. He said, uh, you know, crabs, you don't have to put a lid on the crab barrel. The crabs will just keep pulling each other back in. And he said, that's the problem in a lot of poor communities. Nobody's permitted to succeed. And because if someone succeeds, then everybody else uh, knows they failed. So rather than have uh, a few people succeed, uh, we will have no one succeed. Yeah. And now they kind of try to talk as though, all success is just accidental. Right. Yeah. It's That's just, the other you know, way to write it off. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so again, the, the, but, but the motivation there is, you know, you can see politically why that would be, you know, significance to promote because it keeps people that, you know, the generations that want to want to keep control of things in place without any competition. Right. <laughs> if you make people be, you know, might as well give up because you're just doing it because of privilege and that's evil. So don't, don't try. 
you know? Yeah. yeah. And the only way you can demonstrate that you, uh, you know, are living down your privileges by favoring the envious. Yeah. 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 And anyway, we've come to a thankless task. Yeah. And, and they'll, and they'll, they'll eventually get you too, as the French revolutionaries discovered. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we've come to that point where we should wrap things up. We appreciate your interest in the theology podcast. And, uh, I believe that there will be, uh, this show will get out before we are, uh, conducting our live show in Memphis at the PCA General Assembly. Uh, we'll have a link to information on that in the show notes. Hopefully, if you're in the area, if you're there attending the assembly and you'd like to be with us, we'd love to see you. We're going to have George Grant with us. We're going to have Doug Grotheis with us. Uh, we're going to be doing a couple of shows. And um, it's going to be a great time. And, and it's going to be on Wednesday the 14th. I believe it's the 14th. Don't have my calendar in front of me. But if you're going to G General Assembly in Memphis, you know what I'm getting at. Wednesday, Wednesday. <laughs> but we'll get out the word out in terms of where we'll be, and we hope to see you there. Anyways, too, if you are interested in supporting the Theology Podcast, we have a Patreon page, and uh, those gifts that people give every month pay the bills. So thanks again, and bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another of our podcasts, The Good Life Podcast, featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.